the word of Elisha which he spake. Verses 21 and 22 It was no superficial and temporary change that was wrought, but an effectual and permanent one. I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. Ecclesiastes 3.14 Here we see again the appropriateness of the salt, the emblem of incorruption, hence used in the covenant to express its perpetuity. Placed in a new cruise and then cast into the springs of water, we have a figure of the new and honest heart, out of which are the issues of life. Proverbs 4.23 The nature of fallen men, even the most attractive specimens, is like unwholesome water and barren soil. It must be renewed by God before any good works can be produced. Make the tree good, and its fruit will be good. The miracle is attributed instrumentally, not to the faith or the prayer of Elisha, though there was both, but to his word. By his response, God avouched his prophet and sustained his testimony in Israel. Chapter 6 Third Miracle And he went up from thence unto Bethel, and as he was going up by the way, there came forth little children out of the city and mocked him and said unto him, Go up, thou bald head, go up, thou bald head. And he turned back and looked on them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. And there came forth two she-bears out of the wood, and tear forty and two children of them. Second Kings 2, 23 and 24 In seeking to give an exposition of this miracle, let us observe first its connection. It will be noted that our passage opens with the word and, and as there is nothing meaningless in Scripture, it should be duly pondered. Nor is its force difficult to perceive, for it evidently intimates that we should observe the relation between what we find here and that which immediately precedes. The context records the wonders which God wrought through Elisha at the Jordan and at Jericho. Thus the truth which is here pointed by the conjunction is plain. When the servant has been used by his master, he must expect to encounter the opposition of the enemy. There is an important, if unpalatable, truth illustrated here, one which the minister of Christ does well to take to heart if he would be in some measure prepared for and fortified against bitter disappointment. After a season of blessing and success, he must expect sore trials. After he has witnessed the power of God attending his efforts, he may count upon experiencing something of the rage and power of Satan. 
for nothing infuriates him so much as beholding his victims delivered from spiritual death and set free from that which he occasioned in Eden. Elijah had been signally favored both at the Jordan and at Jericho, but here at Bethel he hears the hiss of the serpent and the roaring of the lion against him. Ah, the minister of the gospel is fully aware of this principle, yea, often reminds his hearers of it. He knows it was the case with his master, for after the Spirit of God had descended upon him, and the Father had testified to his pleasure in him, he was at once led into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Yet how quickly is this forgotten when he is called to pass through this contrastive experience. It is one thing to know this truth theoretically, and it is quite another to have a personal acquaintance with it. The servant of Christ is informed that the smile of heaven upon his labors will arouse the enmity of his great adversary. Yet how often is he taken quite unawares when the storm of opposition bursts upon him. It ought not to be so, but so it usually is. Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. 1 Peter 4.12 Various indeed are the ups and downs which are encountered by those who labor in the Christian vineyard. What a striking contrast is here presented to our view. At Jericho, Elijah is received with respect. The young prophets render obeisance to him and the men of the city seek his help. Here at Bethel he is contemptuously ridiculed by the children. At Jericho, the city of the curse, he is an instrument of blessing. At Bethel, which signifies the house of God, and where blessing might therefore be expected, he solemnly pronounces a curse upon those who mock him. Second, its occasion. This was the insulting of God's servant. As Elisha was approaching Bethel, there came forth little children out of the city and mocked him. Upon reading this incident, it is probable that some will be inclined to say, it seems that children then were much like what they are now, wild, rude, lawless, totally lacking in respect for their seniors. From this analogy, the conclusion will be drawn. Therefore, we should not be surprised nor unduly shocked at the present-day delinquency of our youth. But such a conclusion is entirely unwarranted. It is true there is nothing new under the sun, and that Fallen human nature has been the same in every age. But it is not true that the tide of evil has always flowed uniformly and that each generation has witnessed more or less of the appalling conduct which now marks the young in every part of Christendom.
No, very far from it. When there was an ungrieved spirit in the churches, the restraining hand of God was held upon the baser passions of mankind. That restraint operated largely through parental control, moral training in the home, wholesome instruction and discipline in the school, and adequate punishment of young offenders by the state. But when the Spirit of God is grieved and quenched by the churches, the restraining hand of the Lord is removed and there is a fearful moral aftermath in all sections of the community. When the divine law is thrown out by the pulpit, there inevitably follows a breakdown of law and order in the social realm, which is what we are now witnessing all over the so-called civilized world. That was the case to a considerable extent 25 years ago, and as the further an object rolls downhill, the swifter becomes its momentum, so the moral deterioration of our generation has proceeded apace. As the majority of parents were godless and lawless, it is not to be wondered at that we now behold such reprehensible conduct in their offspring. Older hearers can recall the time when juveniles who were guilty of theft, wanton destruction of property and cruelty to animals were sternly rebuked and made to smart for their wrongdoing. But a few years later, such conduct was condoned and boys will be boys was used to gloss over a multitude of sins. So far from being shocked, many parents were pleased and regarded their erring offspring as smart, precocious, and cute. Educationary authorities and psychologists insisted that children must not be suppressed and repressed, but directed, and prated about the evils inflicted on the child's character by inhibitions, and corporal punishment was banished from the schools. Until today the parent who acts according to Proverbs 13.24 19, 18, 22, 15, and 23, 14 will not only be called a brute by his neighbors, but is likely to be summoned before the courts for cruelty, and instead of supporting him, the magistrate will probably censure him. The present conduct of children is not normal, but abnormal. What is recorded in our passage occurred in the days of Israel's degeneracy. Child delinquency is one of the plain marks of a time of apostasy. It was so then, it is so now. Third, its location. As with the former miracles, the place where this one happened also throws much light upon that which occasioned it. Originally, Bethel was called the house of God, Genesis 28:16 to 19 
but now it had become a habitation of the devil, one of the principal seats of Israel's idolatry. It was here that Jeroboam had set up one of the calves, afraid that he might not be able to retain his hold upon those who had revolted from Rehoboam, especially if they should go up to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices in the temple, he made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set the one in Bethel and the other put he in Dan. And he made a house of high places, and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast for the eighth month, on the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah, and he offered upon the altar. So did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made, and he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. 1 Kings 12, 28-33 Thus it will be seen that so far from Bethel being a place which basked in the sunshine of Jehovah's favor, it was one upon which his frown now rested. Its inhabitants were no ordinary people, but high rebels against the Lord openly defying him to his face, guilty of the most fearful abominations. This it was which constituted the dark background of the scene that is here before us. This it is which accounts for the severity of the judgment which fell upon the youngest of its inhabitants. This it is which explains why these children conducted themselves as they did, What occurred here was far more than the silly prank of innocent children. It was the manifestation of an inveterate hatred of the true God and His faithful servant. Israel's worship of Baal was far more heinous than the idolatry of the Canaanites, for it had the additional and awful guilt of apostasy. And apostates are always the fiercest persecutors of those who cleave to the truth. For the very fidelity of the latter is a witness against and a condemnation of those who have forsaken it. Fourth, its awfulness. The fearful doom which overtook those children must be considered in the light of the enormity of their offense. Our degenerate generation has witnessed so much condoning of the greatest enormities that they may find it difficult to perceive how this punishment fitted the crime. The character of God has been so misrepresented by the pulpit, His claims so little pressed, the position occupied by His servants so imperfectly apprehended, that there must be a returning to the solemn teaching of Holy Writ if this incident is to be viewed in its proper perspective. Of old God said, 
Touch not mine anointed and do my prophets no harm. Psalm 105 verse 15 They are his messengers, his accredited representatives, his appointed ambassadors, and an insult done to them is regarded by God as an insult against himself, said Christ to his ministers. He that receiveth you receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. Matthew 10.40 Conversely, he that despiseth and rejecteth the one sent forth by Christ despiseth and rejecteth him. How little is this realized today? The curse of God now rests on many a place where his ministers were mocked. And he went up from thence unto Bethel, and as he was going up by the way, there came forth little children out of the city and mocked him and said unto him, Go up, thou bald head. After the vain search which had been made for Elijah, verse 17, it is likely that some inkling of his supernatural rapture was conveyed to the prophets at Jericho and from them to their brethren at Bethel. Verse 3. And hence we may conclude that his remarkable translation had been noised abroad, received with skepticism and ridicule by the inhabitants of Bethel. In their unbelief they would mark at it as the apostate leaders of Christian do not believe that the Lord Jesus actually rose again from the dead and that he ascended to heaven in a real physical body, as they make fun of the Christian's hope of his Lord's return and of being caught up to meet him in the air. For Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. Thus in saying, Go up, thou bald head, they were, in all probability, scoffing at the tidings of Elijah's translation, scoffs put into their mouths by their elders. Thomas Scott said, They had heard that Elijah was gone up to heaven, and they insultingly bade Elisha follow him, that they might be rid of him also, and they reviled him for the baldness of his head. Thus they united the crimes of abusing him for a supposed bodily infirmity, contemptuous behavior towards a venerable person, and enmity against him as the prophet of God. The sin, therefore, of these children was very heinous, yet the greater guilt was chargeable on their parents, and their fate was a severe rebuke and awful warning to them. End of quote. How true it is that the curse causeless shall not come, Proverbs 26, 2. And he turned back and looked on them, which indicates he acted calmly and not on the spur of the moment. And he cursed them in the name of the Lord, not out of personal spite, but to vindicate his insulted master. Had Elisha sinned in cursing these children, 
divine providence had not executed it. This was a fair warning from God of the awful judgment about to come upon Israel for their sins. Fifth, its ethics. The passage before us is one which infidels have been quick to seize upon, and lamentable indeed have been many of the answers returned to them. But the scriptures have survived every opposition of its enemies and all the puerile apologies of its weak-kneed friends. Nor are they in any danger whatever in this skeptical and blatant age. Being the word of God, they contain nothing which his servants have any need to be ashamed of, nothing which requires any explaining away. It is not our province to sit in judgment upon holy writ. Our part is to tremble before it, Isaiah 66, 2, knowing that one day we shall be judged by it, John 12:48. As Jehovah was able to look after the sacred ark without the help of any of his creatures, 2 Samuel 6, 6 and 7, so his truth is in need of no carnal assistance from us. It is to be received without question and believed in with all our hearts. It is to be preached and proclaimed without hesitation or reservation, holding back no part of it. Certain so-called Christian apologists have replied to the taunts of infidels by a process of what is termed toning down the passage, arguing that it was not little children but young men who were cursed by the prophet and torn to pieces by the bears. But such an effeminate explanation is as senseless as it is needless. We quite agree with Thomas Scott when he says, Some learned men have endeavored to prove that these offenders were not young children but grown-up persons, and no doubt the word rendered children is often used in that sense. The addition, however, of the word little seems to clearly evince they were not men but young boys who had been brought up in idolatry and taught to despise the prophets of the Lord. Unquote. Others hesitate not to roundly condemn Elisha, saying he should have meekly endured their taunts in silence and that he sinned grievously in cursing them. Sufficient to point out that the master deemed otherwise. So far from rebuking his servant, he sent the bears to fulfill his curse, and there is no appeal against his decision. The passage before us is one that dispensationalists have sought to make capital out of, supposing that it furnishes a convincing illustration and demonstration of the line they draw, or rather the gulf they would make between the Old and New Testament. Trading on the ignorance and credulity of their hearers, most of whom will readily accept the dogmatic assertions of any who pose as men with much light, 
These teachers have insisted that many of the actions of the prophets were entirely foreign to and actuated by a radically different spirit from that which was inculcated and exemplified by Christ and his apostles. They argue that Elijah's slaying of the prophets of Baal and Elisha's cursing of these children evidences the vast difference there is between the dispensations of the law and of grace, and the unruined and unwary are deceived by such claptrap. Sufficient to remind such people that Ananias and Sapphira fell dead at the denunciation of Peter, and that Alamus was smitten with blindness by Paul. Acts 13, 8-11 How blind these dispensationalists are! During the very course of what they term this era of grace, God is even now giving the most awe-inspiring and wide-reaching proof of His wrath against those who flout His law, visiting the earth with sore judgments than any He has sent since the days of Noah. The New Testament equally with the Old teaches, It is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 6 In the incident before us, God was righteously visiting the sins of the fathers upon the children, as he was by the death of their children, also smiting the parents in their tenderest parts. At almost the end of the Old Testament era, we read that Israel mocked the messengers of God and despised his words, and misused his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. Second Chronicles 36.16 Here at Bethel, God was giving a warning, a sample of his coming wrath, unless they reformed their ways and treated his servants better. Sixth, its meaning. At first glance, it certainly appears that there can be no parallel between the action of Elisha here and that which should characterize the servants of Christ, and many are likely to conclude that it can only be by a wide stretch of imagination or a flagrant resting of this incident that it can be made to yield anything pertinent for this age. But it must be remembered that we are not looking for a literal counterpart, but rather a spiritual application. And viewing it thus, our type is solemnly accurate. Ministers of the gospel are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life. Second Corinthians 2, 14 and 15 Certainly the evangelist has no warrant to anathematize any who oppose him, but he is required to pronounce a curse of God those who love not Christ and who obey not his law. 
1 Corinthians 16.22, Galatians 3.10. Seventh, its sequel. This is recorded in the closing verse of 2 Kings 2. And he went from thence to Mount Carmel, and from thence he returned to Samaria. And the violent death of those children as the outcome of Elisha's malediction, we behold the estating of the prophet's divine authority, the sign of his extraordinary office, and the fulfillment of the prediction that he should slay. 1 Kings 19.17 After his unpleasant experience at Bethel, the prophet betook himself to Carmel, which had been the scene of Elijah's grand testimony to a prayer answering God. 1 Kings 18 By making for the mount, the servant of God intimated his need for the renewing of his strength by communication with the Most High and by meditation upon his holiness and power. Samaria was the country where the apostate portion of Israel dwelt, and by going thither, Elisha manifested his readiness to be used of his master as he saw fit in that dark and difficult field of labor. There is only space left for us to barely mention some of the more outstanding lessons to be drawn from this solemn incident. First, Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. Romans 11.22 If the previous miracle exemplified his goodness, certainly this one demonstrated his severity, and the one is as truly a divine perfection as the other. Second, the words as well as actions of children, even little children, are noticed by God. They should be informed of this and warned against showing disrespect to God's servants. Third, what must have been the grief of those parents when they beheld the mangled bodies of their little ones? But how much greater the anguish of parents in the day of judgment when they witnessed the everlasting condemnation of their offspring if it has been occasioned by their own negligence and evil example. Fourth, sooner or later, God will certainly avenge the insults shown his ministers. This writer could relate more than one example of a horrible death overtaking one and another of those who opposed and slandered him. Chapter 7 The Fourth Miracle First, its background. It has pleased the Holy Spirit in this instance to provide a somewhat lengthy and complicated one. So it will be the part of wisdom for us to patiently ponder the account he has given of what led up to and occasioned this exercise of God's wonder-working power. Just as a diamond appears to best advantage when placed in a suitable setting, so we are the more enabled to appreciate the works of God when we take note of their connections. This applies equally to His works in creation, in providence, and in grace. 
We are always the losers if we ignore the circumstances which occasion the varied actings of our God. The longer and darker the night, the more welcome the morning's light, and the more acute our need and urgent our situation, the more manifest the hand of Him that relieves and His goodness in ministering to us. The same principle holds good in connection with the Lord's undertaking for our fellows. And if we were not so self-centered, we should appreciate and render praise for the one as much as for the other. 2 Kings 3 opens by telling us, Now Jehoram the son of Ahab began to reign over Israel in Samaria in the eighteenth year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned twelve years. And he wrought evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and like his mother, for he put away the image of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless he cleaved unto the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. He departed not therefrom. 2 Kings 3, 1-3 Five things are taught us in these verses about that abominable thing which God hates, and which is the cause of all the suffering and sorrow that is in the world, namely sin. First, that God Himself personally observes our wrongdoing. It was in the sight of the Lord that the guilty deeds of Jehoram were performed. How much evil doing is perpetrated secretly and under cover of darkness, supposing none are witness thereto. But though the evil doing may be concealed from human gaze, it cannot be hidden from the omnipresent one, for the eyes of the Lord are in every place, by night as well as by day, beholding the evil and the good. Proverbs 15.3 What curb this ought to place upon us? Second, that God records our evil deeds. Here is a clear case in point. The evil which Jehoram wrought in the sight of the Lord is set down against him, likewise that of his parents before him, and further back still, the sin of Jeroboam. Unspeakably solemn is this. God not only observes, but registers against men every infraction of his law. They commit iniquity and think little or nothing of it but the very one who shall yet judge them has noted the same against them. It may all be forgotten by them, but nothing shall fade from what God has written, and when the dead, both small and great, stand before him, the books will be opened, and they will be judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Revelation 20, verse 12. And my hearer, there is only one possible way of escape from receiving the awful wages of your sins, and that is to throw down the weapons of your warfare against God, cast yourself at the feet of Christ as a guilty sinner, put your trust 
in his redeeming and cleansing blood, and God will say, I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions. Isaiah 44, verse 22. Third, that God recognizes degrees in evil doing. For while Jehoram displeased the Lord, yet it is said, but not like his father and like his mother. Christ declared unto Pilate, He that delivered me unto thee, Judas, hath the greater sin. John 19.11 And again we are told, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye? Shall he be thoughtworthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God? Hebrews 10.28 and 29 There are many who ignore this principle and suppose that since they are sinners it makes no difference how much wickedness they commit. They madly argue, I might as well be hung for a sheep as a lamb that are only treasuring up unto themselves wrath against the day of wrath. Romans 2 verse 5 For every transgression and disobedience will yet receive a just recompense of reward. Hebrews 2 verse 2 Fourth, that God observes whether our reformation be partial or complete. This comes out in the fact that we are told Jehoram put away the image or statue that his father had made. 2 Kings 3 Two, but he did not destroy it, and a few years later, their worship was restored. God's word touching this matter was plain. Thou shalt utterly overthrow them and quite break down their images. Exodus 23:24. Sin must be dealt with by no unsparing hand, and when we resolve to break therefrom. We must burn our boats behind us, or they are likely to prove an irresistible temptation to return unto our former ways. Fifth, that God duly notes our continuance in sin. For it is here recorded of Jehoram that he not only cleaved unto the sins of Jeroboam, but also that he departed not therefrom, which greatly aggravated his guilt. To enter upon a course of wrongdoing is horrible wickedness, but to deliberately persevere therein is much worse. How few heed that word, break off thy sins by righteousness. Daniel 4.27 And Misha, king of Moab, was a sheepmaster, and rendered unto the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs and a hundred thousand rams with the wool. But it came to pass, when Ahab was dead, that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. Second Kings 3, 4 and 5 In fulfillment of Balaam's prophecy, Numbers twenty four seventeen. David had conquered the Moabites so that they became his servants. Second Samuel eight two, 
and they continued in subjection to the kingdom of Israel until the time of its division, when their vassalage and tribute was transferred to the kings of Israel, as those of Edom remained to the kings of Judah. But upon the death of Ahab they revolted. Therein we behold the divine providence crossing his sons in their affairs. This rebellion on the part of Moab should be regarded in the light of when a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. Proverbs 16.7 But when our ways displease him, evil from every quarter menaces us. Temporal as well as spiritual prosperity depends entirely on God's blessings. To make his hand more plainly apparent, God frequently punishes the wicked after the similitude of their sins. He did so to Ahab's sons. Having turned from the Lord, Moab was moved to rebel against them. Having dwelt upon the divine side of Moab's revolt, let us offer one remark upon the human side. As we ponder this incident, we are made to realize that there is no new thing under the sun. Discontent and strife, jealousies and bloodshedding have characterized the relations of one nation to another all through history. Instead of mutual respect and peace, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another, Titus 3, 3, have marked them all through the peace. How aptly were the great empires of antiquity symbolized by four great beasts, Daniel 7, 3, and wild, ferocious, and cruel ones at that. Human depravity is a solemn reality, and neither education nor legislation can eradicate or sublimate it. What then are the ruling powers to do? Deal with it with a firm hand, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. He beareth not the sword in vain, for he, the governmental and civil ruler, is the minister of God to maintain law and order, a revenger to enforce law and order upon him that doeth evil. Romans 13.4 To strike terror into them and not pamper, to punish the lawbreaker, not attempt to reform him. But it came to pass when Ahab was dead that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. The Moabites were the descendants of the son which Lot had by his elder daughter. They occupied a territory to the southeast of Judah and east of the Red Sea. They were a strong and fierce people, the mighty men of Moab, Exodus 15.15. Balak, who sent for Balaam to curse Israel, was one of their kings. Even as proselytes, they were barred from entering the congregation of the Lord unto the tenth generation. They were idolaters, 1 Kings 11.33. For the space of no less than a hundred and fifty years, they had apparently paid a heavy annual tribute, 
But upon the death of Ahab, they had decided to throw off the yoke and be mulched no further. And King Jehoram went out of Samaria the same time and numbered all Israel. Second Kings 3, 6 There was no turning to the Lord for counsel and help. He was the one who had given David success and brought the Moabites into subjection. And unto him ought Jehoram to have turned now that they rebelled. But he was a stranger to Jehovah, nor did he consult the priests of the calves, so that apparently he had no confidence in them. How sad is the case of the unregenerate in the hour of need. No divine comforter in sorrow, no unerring counselor in perplexity, no sure refuge when danger menaces them. How much men lose even in this life by turning their backs upon the one who gave them being. Nothing less than spiritual madness can account for the folly of those who observe lying vanities and forsake their own mercies. Jonah 2, 8 Jonah had to learn that lesson in a hard school. Alas, the vast majority of our fellows never learn it. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they 
To admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.